I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the new leadership in the Philippines, Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., who apparently was elected in a landslide, we have with us Greg Poling, who's the head of our Southeast Asia program at CSIS and also the head of our Asia Maritime Transparency Project. Greg, so glad that you're here to help us understand exactly what just happened in the Philippines. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. So, Greg, this is kind of a big deal. You've got Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of Ferdinand Marcos, who was deposed decades ago, now returning his family to power. What is this all about? It's in large part about the failure of the post-Marco system to deliver for a lot of Filipinos. I mean, it's not a story that's dissimilar to what we've seen in the wave of populist leaders throughout the last several years, including here in the States. And it's much the same frustration that drove Rodrigo Duterte into office in 2016. They tried one populist, you know, maverick president from Davao, and that didn't work over the last six years. So now they're trying Marcos, who ran on this pledge of kind of unity and national revitalization. And his team leaned very hard for the last several years into this disinformation campaign to paint the old Marcos dictatorship as an era of peace and prosperity in a foregone golden age. And most Filipinos don't remember. They weren't there and they've bought into this lie. So, Greg, most people don't know the extent of how disinformation really impacts elections in the Philippines and impacts politics in the Philippines. Can you give us a sense of that landscape? A lot of data suggests that Filipinos are, in many ways, the most online. They don't have the highest rate of connection in the world, but they spend the most time on social media. Often, Facebook comes free with this is the most time of anybody in the world is what you're talking about right so uh, the average filipino spends more time on social media platforms every day than the average citizen in any other country they might not be online in the general sense but even if they don't have a home wired computer connection they've got a phone and the phone probably came preloaded with a free facebook app and in an era where duterte's six years has seen regular attacks on the traditional media the ability of the Marcos campaign to weaponize social media, which was really the only place left that a lot of Filipinos were getting their news, was noteworthy. And much as in the U.S. and elsewhere, it operates in closed systems of friends and acquaintances touching on the things that they want to believe anyway, right? The system's not working for us now, so they want to believe that there was some bygone golden age that the system can be returned to if they just elect this guy. And so they fell into it. So, Greg, I've been around Filipino nationals plenty of times. And as much as we're glued to our phones here in the United States, it seems like they're even more glued. So this landscape of disinformation really has a major impact. That's right. It absolutely does. And this really became the narrative in the closing months or two of the campaign where Lenny Robredo, the current vice president, who was Marcos's only real challenger, mobilized 
a large movement around the idea that they were kind of the defenders of truth. This became a, a campaign of truth versus fiction as much as it was Lenny versus Marcos. And her grassroots support was really mobilized around this idea that we can't let history be rewritten, right? We can't forget the dictatorship and the revolution, the people power revolution in 1986 that overthrew it. And unfortunately, that didn't work, but it did managed to build a grassroots campaign, the likes of which the Philippine political landscape has never seen. And that's not going to go away. So, you know, Marcus is going to have his six years, but I expect that this fight between how Filipinos remember their own history is going to continue. So let's talk about that history. Ferdinand Marcos, the elder, of course, was a despised dictator who came in in a popular wave, but he he ruled for over three decades. And his rule was marked by an enormous amount of corruption, wasn't it? It was. So look, Marcos was elected twice in the 1950s in more or less free, not fair, but free elections. He was the only Philippine president to be reelected. He then decided he didn't want to leave power. And so he drummed up, you know, overblown narratives about communist threats and the like to engineer martial law in 1972 and then clung to power until finally tossed out in the People Power Revolution of 86. And there is truth to the idea that there was economic growth and relative peace and prosperity for maybe the first half of that. But that's because Marcos was busy riding high on earlier accomplishments. The kleptocracy that he put in place, both his family and their crony networks, was stunning in scale. And by the time the 1980s came around, they had completely bankrupted the economy, put it into a tailspin, turned the Philippines into what became known as the sick man of Asia. And that economic mismanagement, as much as anything else, is what led eventually to the people power revolution and threw them out. So now bring us up to speed with Ferdinand Jr., also known as Bong Bong. What does his election mean for the future of the Philippines and what can we expect in the in the short and long term? Up at the top, I want to make clear, this is not 1972. This is not the end of Philippine democracy. We have no idea if Bong Bong is like his father. He has no real record. I mean, he served in the Congress. He served as governor of his home province. He served in the Senate. He didn't show up for work a lot during any of those. He doesn't have a track record of legislation, nor did he run on any policy platform. He avoided the election debates and the media like the plague. So he's kind of a blank slate on a lot of things. We have no idea what he's going to run on. What we do know is that he has cobbled together a coalition of many of the most powerful political families in the Philippines, including most of the post-Marcos presidents, and is running really as kind of the head of the table of the old families, of the oligarchs. That means that it is going to further weaken Philippine democracy. You're going to see this continued consolidation of kind of a cartel democracy. Won't end overnight, but it will continue the same headwinds that brought Duterte to power and that Duterte accelerated during his time in office. For the U.S., if there's a silver lining, it's that, one, unlike Duterte, Marcos doesn't have a blank check that he can run with. He didn't come to power on some populist wave. He came to power as a creature of the political elite, and so he has to listen to all those political elites which means that he's more constrained in his ability to just wreck stuff than Duterte was. And there's no indication that Marcos is as ideological or as ambitious in his anti-Americanism or his pro-China sentiment as Duterte was. 
So my sense is that we've got some rough patches ahead, but Marcos is probably not going to spend his entire presidency trying to attack the American alliance the way Duterte did. His father's reign was marked by massive corruption. Some reports put it that they stole over $10 billion from the Philippine people. If the Philippine people don't have a, a long memory of this, you know, is there concern in the international community that we might see a repeat of that plundering and ruining the Philippine economy? Marcos is certainly the child, the scion of corruption. The networks of family and business leads that surround him have made good use of that corruption. The estimate is that the Marcos family took about $10 billion out of the economy when they fled in 86. The Philippine government after that, the new government that was set up in 87, set up a special commission that still operates just to get that wealth back, and they've only managed to find about half of it. On top of that, once the family returned to the country in 1991 and, and returned to politics, I mean, every member of the family has gotten to be a senator, a governor, a, a representative in the Congress – they decided not to pay taxes. So Marcos faces back taxes in the Philippines that with fees now amount to a couple billion more U.S. dollars. So the scale of the corruption here kind of boggles the mind. All of that said, this is still not 1972, nor is it 1986. The kind of brazen, naked kleptocracy that Marcos was famous for, you know, Imelda's 3,000 pairs of shoes that became infamous around the world – I don't think that you can get away with that kind of corruption in today's Philippines. I think it'll be more subtle and more institutional. The effect on the macro economy remains to be seen. A lot of this is going to depend on who he puts into office. Duterte, for all of his other foibles, did make some macroeconomic reforms that are good for the economy, continuing some of the efforts that his predecessor Aquino made. So there has been a story here of kind of good macroeconomics despite the corruption and bad governance at the top. And that could continue. Greg, with this Marcos, bong bong, do we know what his attitude towards the United States government is? I don't know that he knows what his attitude toward the United States government is. Marcos undoubtedly still has some access to grind over the family's perception that the Reagan administration did not back them sufficiently in 1986 and, and threw the family overboard which is a whole nother story. Reagan certainly was a close friend to Imelda Marcos and Ferdinand Marcos and resisted tooth and nail throwing them overboard until he absolutely had to. But once the decision was made, the U.S. did quickly ban the family. That said, the U.S. also flew them to Honolulu for exile so they didn't get dragged through the streets. The present day Marcos family still might have that concern, but you don't hear a lot of it from Bong Bong himself on the campaign trail. Again, he avoided the press. The few things he did say sounded a lot like Duterte's anti-American excuses. Uh, he said that he didn't believe necessarily that the U.S. alliance was the best way to solve the South China Sea. But he didn't go as far as Duterte did. Right? He didn't say that the Americans won't die for us. He didn't say that you can't trust the Americans. If nothing else, he's more politic about it. And since the election, he has said that he wants to work uh, with the United States to strengthen the alliance. It was helpful that Secretary Blinken sent a message congratulating him almost immediately and that President Biden was the first foreign head of state to call and congratulate him. 
I think the U.S. is aware that we messed up by not reaching out to Duterte on the campaign trail or early enough in 2016. It didn't matter if we liked him. He was duly elected and we should have done a better job. And we're not going to make the same mistake this time. So explain why the Philippines is still important to the United States. There are both strategic and I would argue moral reasons that the Philippine alliance remains critical. Strategically, if you look at a map, there's only one place south of Japan in Asia that there's any hope of getting rotational access for U.S. forces in either a South China Sea or a Taiwan contingency, and that's the Philippines. It's the only treaty ally in Southeast Asia. Yes, we call the ties a treaty ally, but there's not actually a treaty, nor will the ties allow any U.S. access in, in a China fight. So if you lose that access in the Philippines, you'll never get it back anywhere else. All of Indo-PACOM's plans for things like the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, the Marine Commandant's plans for stand-in forces within Chinese missile range, presume that they're standing in the Philippines. So if that goes out the window, we're going to have to rewrite every war plan we have for the Indo-Pacific. Every war plan? Yes. You, If you don't have access to anything south of Taiwan, then you have to figure out how you're supposed to fight from Guam, you know, which is 1,500 nautical miles from the South China Sea. You are agreeing that the southern half of what we call the first island chain in the South China Sea is a Chinese lake in any fight, and we no longer have, have access to it. For the Filipinos, this is just as critical. If the Philippines wants to maintain their legal rights in the South China Sea, maintain their claims to the Spratly Islands, and deter Chinese aggression, they have only one bullet in the chamber, and that's the threat of U.S. intervention under the alliance. They have the weakest military in the region up against the world's second most powerful military. The threat of U.S. intervention is the only thing that prevents the Chinese from simply steamrolling Filipino forces and deciding that they're going to take whatever they want. Now, I, I do think it's important that we also address the, the historical piece here. The United States spent 48 years as a colonial master of the Philippines, history that we do not teach our children and that we do not like to think about because it doesn't resonate with the story we tell ourselves of how we were different than the Europeans. After that, we locked the Filipinos into an unequal economic relationship in which they could basically only trade with us and then watched all of their Southeast Asian neighbors grow at much faster rates than they did as a result. So the fact that the Philippines became the sick man of Asia is in part our fault. They are also our oldest treaty ally we, in, in the region, in Asia. We signed the mutual defense treaty with the Philippines three days before the treaty relationship with the Australians and, and the Kiwis. For specifically that reason, the Philippines want to make sure they got in first. So I strongly believe that as long as the Filipinos want to stand up to China or anybody else, we have an obligation to stand behind them. Now, like with everything else in the region, it comes down to, for a lot of these countries, are they with the United States or are they with China? Do we know what the Philippines under Bong Bong is going to think of China and how it's going to approach China? Bong Bong has said some very nice things about Beijing on the campaign trail. The Chinese ambassador to the Philippines rushed to be the first in the diplomatic corps to congratulate Bong Bong after his win and deliver a letter from Xi Jinping. Bong Bong has said that he will try to continue Duterte's policy of outreach, seeking a bilateral deal in the South China Sea. 
He's poo-pooed the value of the 2016 arbitration that the Philippines won against China. Um, but again, he doesn't seem to pair that with the same ideological anti-Americanism that Duterte did. I don't think it's an either-or choice for him in the way it was for Duterte. So what I think the U.S. is going to have to do is try to deepen the alliance, continue a lot of things that Indo-PACOM has gotten underway, for instance, since Secretary Austin's visit out to Manila last summer, which really helped right the ship of the alliance, and ignore some inevitable early outreach to Beijing. I firmly believe that China is incapable of changing its behavior toward the Philippines. If they were going to treat the Philippines better, they would have done it at some point under the six years of Duterte. Instead, they took advantage of the outreach hand. And today, China is even less popular in the Philippines than it was six years ago. So Marcos is going to learn, I think, the same lessons about China that Duterte had to the hard way. So the United States has a chance here to really gain some ground in our alliance with the Philippines, don't we? We do, and we must. The most, I think, dangerous period in the U.S.-Philippine alliance is probably now and for the next couple of years. When he was Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo stood on a tarmac at the Manila airport and pledged that the United States would defend Filipino forces if they came under attack anywhere in the South China Sea. Secretaries Blinken and Austin have reiterated that commitment. And yet we have virtually no access to the Philippines because of the slow walking of, of the alliance under the Duterte government. As a result, there is an enormous gap between our rhetorical and legal commitments and what we're actually able to do. The U.S. could not defend Filipino forces credibly if they came under attack in the South China Sea right now. And Filipino forces can look at a map the same as we can. So we either have to plug that gap in the next few years before China calls our bluff or the alliance is going to go away. Are we able to plug that gap? I mean, is that something we can actually do? Yes. We negotiated an agreement under the Obama administration in 2014 called the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. This was part of what the Obama administration used to call places, not bases, the same period that we negotiated the Marines' access to Darwin in Northern Australia and the littoral combat ship deployment in Singapore. So the idea was that we would pick a bunch of Philippine military bases the U.S. would use military construction funds to fund upgrades to those facilities and would pre-position its own equipment and rotate U.S. forces through to do things like monitoring the Chinese in the South China Sea, training with Filipinos, and helping reestablish deterrence. And then when we left, those facilities would become Philippine facilities. So it would both help plug the gap in the short term that you know, U.S. forces need to be there because Philippine forces can't deter China themselves. But over the long term, it would contribute to the modernization of Philippine armed forces. That agreement went into court turmoil in the Philippines. It was finally ruled constitutional at the beginning of 2016. But then the Duterte government put a halt on any implementation for six years. So we've basically wasted uh, you know eight years in which we should have been rotating U.S. forces through Philippine military bases and upgrading Philippine capabilities. Now we've got to move double time to do what we should have done then. Greg, the ASEAN summit is upon us. What will the Philippines look for from the United States and vice versa? The Philippines will be the only ASEAN state besides Burma, Myanmar, not represented by their head of state at the summit. So the summit started yesterday and continues today. And uh, Duterte didn't go because the election was you know, a couple days beforehand. He wasn't going to plan to leave. Secretary of Foreign Affairs, uh, Teddy Boy Loxin, is here. 
And there will be a lot of good sideline meetings. I mean, the mill mill stuff has been going great for the last 18 months. We've made remarkable progress in writing the ship and not just doing things like implementing the EDCA agreement. We've done a lot of good work over the last 12 to 18 months on maturing the alliance, making it the equal alliance that the Filipinos want. Meaning that it's not just the U.S. gets access to Philippine territory in exchange for providing a security umbrella. We're talking to Philippine counterparts about contingency plans, modernization, expectations in the way that we talk to our Japanese and Korean and Australian and NATO partners. We're finally treating the Filipinos like a real ally, not just a place that we put U.S. forces and that has to happen if it's going to be a sustainable alliance. So continuing that kind of discussion of equals is going to be the most important thing, both at this summit and, and moving forward. The big gap remains everything other than military. The economic relationship, the Philippines is frustrated for all the same reasons all of our other partners are in Asia, that we have no economic plan for the region. The Indo-Pacific economic framework is the only thing on the table, and nobody knows what it is, and nobody has terribly high hopes that it's going to be a real economic re-engagement with the region. And then yesterday, you had the White House release the fact sheet of all the new programs that they're going to roll out as part of this U.S.-ASEAN summit, and the grand total was $150 million, which $150 million ain't nothing, but I mean, the Congress is approving tens of billions of dollars for Ukraine every month, so... It's really hard to look Southeast Asian leaders in the face and say, you're, you know, the Indo-Pacific is a priority theater, except we can't, you know, we're looking around the couch cushions for spare change to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, it's a big priority for us, but here's five bucks. Exactly. Yeah. Greg, thank you so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter about the latest election in the Philippines and what it means for the United States. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 